0: Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. We have a few weeks left in this series that we have been in where we have been walking through the parables, the stories that Jesus tells over the course of his ministry. And we've made it to the point in the story where Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem for what will be the last week of his earthly life and ministry. And while he is there, we began to see last week, and we'll see again today, that as he's there, he's confronted by religious leaders who are trying to trap him in his words, get him put to death, And we saw last week, and we'll see again today, that one of the ways that Jesus responds to those attacks is to tell stories. And I don't know about you, but, but that strikes me as a little bit strange. I mean, when you're uh, having your authority questioned, like we saw last week, when someone's trying to trap you in your words so that they can have you arrested and put to death, it would seem like you need something a little more than a story. It would seem you would need you know, a, a snappy sound bite, a quick rebuttal, something like that to get the pressure off of you, and yet Jesus tells stories. And I don't know if I have a full explanation as to why that is, but I do think that at least part of the reason is because a well-told story has a way of getting through our defenses. The psychologist Daniel Kahneman once said, no one ever made a decision based on a number. They need a story. I could stand up here and tell you statistics as long as I wanted to about the, the dangers of driving at high speeds uh, without wearing a seat belt and tell you about how that increases the risk of, of, of death and injury and things like that. Or I could stand up here and tell you a story about what happens to someone who was driving at high speeds without wearing a seatbelt and had an accident and, and make the same point in a far more memorable way. Stories have power. I could tell you the statistics of how on Friday, September 23rd, 2022, Albert Pujols, a first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals in a game against the Los Angeles Dodgers, hit his 699th and 700th career home runs in back-to-back at-bats, becoming just the fourth player in the history of Major League Baseball to reach that career milestone. Uh, I could read you all of those factual statistics or I could tell you the story of how it felt that night to sit on the couch and watch Albert Pujols now in his 40s but who for my entire childhood was the best player in baseball on my favorite team and it seemed like he was almost a superhero and how on that night in back-to-back at bats in storybook fashion he hit two home runs to reach this milestone that only three men had ever reached before him, and I could tell you about how I didn't know what to do with my emotions, so I jumped up off the couch and just kind of paced around the house for a while, texting friends and family who were watching the game as well about what we had just witnessed. I should clarify, it wasn't the most emotional day of 2022 for me, but uh, it was (laughs) maybe in the top five, if we're being entirely honest. And assuming you care about such things... Uh, that, that, That story is probably far more meaningful, far more memorable than being read statistics. And the power of stories, I think, are at least part of the reason why Jesus tells stories. Even now, with all of this tension and opposition and questions being asked of him, he is trying to connect, he's trying to get through our defenses so that we will listen to the message that he has for us. So as Jesus tells this story we'll be looking at today, he is within the temple courts within Jerusalem, and it seems that the entire city is divided up on what to do with Jesus. You have some who are convinced that he is the Messiah, who at any moment now is going to rise up and take his rightful place as the ruler of God's people. He's going to kick out the oppressive Romans. He's going to set up God's people as as the dominant force in this region again. And then you have the crowd that is convinced that he is a fraud, that he is not who he claims to be, that he has to be stopped no matter what the cost, and that voice of opposition will grow louder and louder as the week progresses. Jesus has been dealing with both of these crowds from the moment he walked into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And as we read the story, we saw, we've seen that Jesus has been sort of on the defensive, we might say. In the passage Curtis walked us through last week, Jesus has someone come to him with a question and he is on the defensive, reacts to them and tells them this story. And if I can put it in those terms, Jesus goes on the offensive in the passage we're going to look at today by telling the story of of a man who owned a vineyard. Jesus reacts to the opposition against him, not with a lecture, but with a story to give a picture of what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom and the consequences of rejecting him but before we get into the story Jesus tells here we need to take just a step back and ask the question of why Jesus tells this specific story involving a vineyard because we get a similar story like it in the old testament In Isaiah chapter 5, we are told the story by the prophet Isaiah of a man who plants a vineyard, and this man pulls out all the stops to make sure that his vineyard can be as fruitful as possible, and Isaiah says after all that work, harvest season comes, and it doesn't produce any grapes. And so it would make sense, any good farmer would say that if your, your land's not being productive, you must have done something wrong, so there's nothing to do but tear it all down and start over. And Isaiah tells that story, and he points his finger at his fellow Israelites, and he says in Isaiah 5-7, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah says God is this vineyard owner and his people were supposed to be a vineyard and he had done all this work to establish them to make sure they had everything they needed to flourish to be light in a dark world and they have not done it and because they have not done it judgment is on the way because God's people have not followed God's ways and what follows in history is exile The empires of Assyria and Babylon coming in, taking God's people out of the land God had given them, all the while prophets continue to come to God's people and tell them to hold on, to listen to what God is saying, to repent, to turn around, to do what God calls them to do because if we do, if we repent, if we follow God's ways again, there will be restoration. And now that one has come and like Isaiah, he tells a story about a vineyard to show what is to come for God's people. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 12. Mark says that Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some owners and moved to another place. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. Then he he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, "'They will respect my son.'" But the tenants said to one another, well, this is the heir, come, uh, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. An arrangement like this where a landowner would rent out his land and then go away was pretty common in Jesus' day. A world where a majority of the land was owned by a minority of the people. But before that happens, this vineyard owner puts in a lot of work. If you notice, he puts up a wall to keep out any animals. He digs a pit so that the grapes can be pressed in a wine press right there on site. He puts up a watchtower to keep an eye on the surroundings. And then he puts together a lease agreement. He puts some tenants in charge and leaves. And Jesus doesn't walk through all the details, but it sounds like, based on what he is describing, that this is a brand new vineyard. And so, because this is a new vineyard, it's going to be a couple years before uh, that first crop comes in. And apparently, in those intervening years, uh, these tenants have developed a mindset of squatter's rights. I mean, the owner's been gone for a while. It's We're the ones actually putting in all the work. This owner might not even remember he owns this vineyard. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this is basically our vineyard. Let's do as we please. The expression possession is nine-tenths of the law wasn't around in Jesus' day, at least as far as I know, but that's essentially their assumption. Some of my favorite shoes that I own are are sandals that are called Chacos. And Chacos are great, and they're not paying me to say any of this, but if they wanted an endorsement deal with me, I'd be glad to do it. Uh, Chacos are great because on the bottom, they're basically tennis shoes, but they've got straps and things, so they're sandals on the top, so you get the comfort of sandals and the practicality of tennis shoes all in one. And you didn't need to know all of that, but I felt like it was worth sharing. But I came across my first pair of Chacos as a gift. A friend of mine had an extra pair, and I was looking for some for a summer, and he said, well, how about you just borrow mine, and you can just wear them for the summer. If you like them, once we get to the end of the summer, maybe you can buy them from me or something, and we'll work it out. So that's what we do, and, and I thought they were great. And fast forward a couple of years, and the Chacos are starting to get a little worn out. I've, I've started to notice that when I walk, the bottom uh, is, is not fully attached. It kind of makes a flapping sound every time I take a step. So I feel like something might need to be done about that. So I say to uh, my friend who actually gave me the Chacos, I said, hey, you know, uh, we were just making conversation, I said, hey, the the Chacos you gave me actually are, it's kind of starting to get worn out, I'm thinking I'm going to have to buy a pair to replace them. And his response was something to the effect of, so does that mean now I'm going to get paid for the Chacos that I was supposed to sell to you? Which was not... (laughs) A thought that had crossed my mind but because the the shoes had been in my possession the entire time I assumed they were mine to do with as I pleased and that I could just get rid of them replace them however I however I saw fit and the tenants of this vineyard are having that same thought only their response to being confronted with the fact that they don't actually own this land takes a darker turn harvest season comes and So as would be expected, the owner of the vineyard sends one of his servants to go and collect his share of the harvest, and the tenants beat him and send him back empty-handed. The owner assumes there must have been some sort of misunderstanding, we've got some sort of problem here, so I'll send another servant to straighten things out, and this one is mocked and treated shamefully and given some sort of head injury and sent back as well. He sends another servant, and the third servant doesn't make it back empty-handed because he doesn't make it back at all, because when he shows up in the vineyard, he's put to death by the tenants. And it would seem that the point has been made at this point, but apparently this vineyard owner is either too dense or too optimistic or something else is going on. He keeps sending servants, one after another, each one of them not collecting what is rightfully the owners, each one of them uh, experiencing some sort of hardship because they were sent by the owner of the vineyard. So what's a vineyard owner to do? It would seem the point's been made at this point, and it would seem that drastic action needs to be taken, but what is that action supposed to be? I mean, is it force? Is it a social media campaign? Is it reporting them to the authorities? Despite how harsh these tenants have been, the owner of this vineyard does not give up. He he assumes this time will be different, because he looks around, and the last person he has to send is his son. His son, whom he loves. So he sends his son to go to the vineyard, and it does bring about a different response from these tenants. It's just the response isn't the one the vineyard owner was hoping for. Uh, we we don't really know what their thinking is, but apparently, when they see the sun coming, they assume that this must mean that the owner of the vineyard has died, and that the son, as the heir to this land, is coming to tell them that that hey, my dad's gone. I'm in charge now. Things are going to be different, and so their thinking becomes well if we can just get rid of this son then we can take control of the vineyard and so they take him they put him to death they throw him out of the vineyard they don't give him the decency of a burial and in their mind that settles it they've gotten rid of all this authority that was over them they can do as they please now but the problem is things are not as they assume the owner of the vineyard's alive and well And as patient as he has been through all of this rejection of his authority, there comes a breaking point, and that comes after they put his son to death, which I think is natural. I know a lot of you are very kind and patient people, but if someone starts messing with your kid, no matter how old they are, it brings up emotion in you. And the same is happening here. The vineyard owner's been nice and lenient, far more patient than they deserve, but after they put his son to death, it makes sense that he would rise up and get rid of these tenants for his own sake, for the sake of his son and his servants, for the sake of his vineyard. And and, and that makes sense in part, at least I think to us, because this is how our God acts, which Jesus shows by quoting from Psalm 118 at the end of this story. Psalm 118 is a psalm of victory, it is a psalm that celebrates that God has has won victory for his people and in the verses that Jesus quotes God is praised because he has brought about this victory through unlikely means he has taken something that was rejected this stone that the builders thought was not needed for construction at all and he has taken it and made it the cornerstone he has taken it that was thought unfit and made it the most important piece of all God has brought victory through unlikely means he has taken something rejected something humanity looks down on to be the most important thing of all and that makes sense i think as a as a verse to conclude this parable i mean these tenants thought they had succeeded through brute force and had gotten rid of the vineyard owner's authority but we know as we listen to this story that that's not the case soon the owner will show up things will be turned upside down and they'll have to give an account for what they've done And that's the end of the story, but it's also what is happening around Jesus in the temple. And as Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, it shifts our focus away from this fictional story he has told back into the situation that he is living within. Because God has always worked through unlikely ways, taking stones that were rejected and making them the cornerstone taking things that would seem insignificant and elevating them to prominence. And he's doing the same thing through this carpenter from Nazareth and the religious leaders who thought they were prepared for God to send his Messiah are missing it because they're like the tenants, trying to get rid of the authority of the owner. And now the owner has sent his son, giving them one last chance to recognize his authority and instead they are rubbing their hands together because they see an opportunity If we can just get rid of the sun, then everything will be as we want it. And at this moment, the the other shoe drops, and the religious leaders realize Jesus has told this story about them, has gotten through their defenses. And the last verse of this passage shows us how they recognize it. In verse 12, it says, Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, Because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Parables always call us to respond. Jesus is not content to allow us to be entertained with his creative storytelling and then go on about our day. His stories call us to engage with what he is saying with every part of who we are so that we might align ourselves with who God is and be a part of this kingdom he has come to establish and that is what he is doing as he tells this parable. He's putting these religious leaders on the spot so that hopefully they will hear what he is saying and stop trying to take control of this vineyard for themselves that was never supposed to be theirs to begin with. They would stop their scheming to murder the son. And yet all they hear is Jesus criticizing their way of operating. And they don't like being told they're wrong. So they walk away angry. Even more entrenched against Jesus. Even more convinced that he's a fraud that has to be dealt with. And even more aware that it will be tricky to do so because the crowds continue to swell every time Jesus speaks. The story from Jesus exposes that they are doing the very thing that the opponents of God have always done. Isaiah had criticized the people in his day because God had called them to be faithful and to be a fruitful vineyard and they had not. Time and time again, God had sent his servants to his people. He had sent the prophets and calling them to repent and they had refused. They'd beaten the prophets mistreated them, sent them away, generally ignored their message. And then God sent John the Baptist to prepare the way, to call God's people to get ready because God's anointed Messiah was on the way. And sure, some people listened to John, but the end of John's life was him being arrested, thrown in prison, and having his head taken off. And now Jesus has come. And the religious leaders are plotting to get rid of him as well. They had been entrusted by God to care for the vineyard of his people. To get ready for the day when God would send his son to collect his share of the harvest. And instead they have assumed that the vineyard is theirs and therefore they can do as they please. And they may think that if they just get rid of the son then all their problems will be over. But that will simply mean that the true owner of the vineyard will come and will deal with them. And Psalm 118 reminds us that this is how God has always acted. When Isaiah is called to be a prophet in Isaiah chapter 6, he's given this amazing vision of God's glory and awe and majesty, and he is overwhelmed with who God is, and he volunteers to be a prophet, to do what God says, to proclaim his message to the people, and the response he gets from God, if I can paraphrase, is essentially, that's great, Isaiah, you're going to go do it, and no one's going to listen to you. You're probably just going to make the situation worse. But I will accomplish my purposes. It's not an encouraging scene. When God wanted a king after his own heart, he sends the prophet Samuel to the home of the farmer Jesse. Jesse has eight sons, and he says, one of these is going to be my king, and it turns out that the one who's going to be anointed to be king is the youngest son who wasn't even invited to the party because he was just a shepherd boy out taking care of the sheep, and God says, that is who will be my king. Not the most amazing picture of kingship we've ever seen, but the one God chooses Psalm 118 celebrates that God has brought victory through means that seemed unlikely because that is how God works time and time again. And it is how he is working through Jesus. Despite opposition in some mysterious way, his purposes will be accomplished. And these religious leaders might think getting rid of Jesus will mean success for their plans, but the reality is that it is through their schemes to get rid of Jesus that God will win the ultimate victory. And that's the other side of God working through unlikely means. Even when there's rejection of God and his messengers, God always sustains a remnant. The majority of people might have ignored the message God sent Isaiah with to the people, but there is a remnant that God works through. There was rejection in Psalm 118, but the fact that there are people around to write this psalm and sing it in celebration after the fact means that there are at least some who listen and some who participate in God's victory There's always a remnant. There might be opposition as Jesus speaks here in the temple, and that opposition is just going to get louder and louder as the days proceed, and it might get to the point where there are only a handful of people still following Jesus as he dies on the cross, but there is always a remnant. They might not seem powerful or influential, but they're this group that stands in the long line of people that God has always worked through, And it will be through the rejection of Jesus and these people that God accomplishes his purposes. Because God will get what is his. There is no amount of scheming by the tenants that will be able to change the ownership of the vineyard. And the same will happen with these religious leaders. They have their schemes, but ownership of the vineyard has not changed hands. They might think they're in charge, but sooner or later, the owner is going to show up and will get what is rightfully his. And the way that comes about might look strange to our eyes, but that is how God has always worked. It might look like failure when the son is murdered, but it will look like victory when the son rises from the dead. And that's where this story is headed, even if we can't see it all from this one Passage. So, because we know where the story is headed, we are left with the question of how we will respond. The religious leaders have made their decision by walking away from Jesus with their schemes to get rid of him, but if we listen to Jesus tell the story, the question is still open as to what we will do because Jesus is calling you and me to him just as much as he is calling these religious leaders. And through all of our scheming and plans of taking control for ourselves, Jesus calls us to him. Because God is still coming for what is his, and what is his is you and me. And for that reason, Jesus calls us to give up control of what was never ours to begin with, and to simply come to him as we are, so that we might live within God's vineyard. God is still coming for what is his, even right now. Each and every one of us have been in that position of wanting to throw off the authority of the owner of the vineyard to get rid of God's authority in favor of our own. We've all been in the position of knowing what God asks of us and decide that it would be better if we put ourselves in charge. We know it's God's vineyard, but we sure think we could do a better job. I don't know what it is, maybe... Maybe we know that Scripture makes it very clear that sex is to be reserved between a man and a woman in a committed marriage to one another. It's just sometimes it's easier to do what feels good. And we reject the owner of the vineyard. Maybe we know a verse of Scripture like Ephesians 4.29 that says don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. It's just they seem to come out naturally. And those words of tearing other people down are just easier and simpler and we reject the owner of the vineyard maybe we know that the way of Jesus time and time again calls us to a way of humility that Jesus said he did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life for us and he invites us to do the same thing it's just if I don't fight for myself who will if I don't proclaim how great I am to the world around me who will Don't I have to make something of myself to make myself look good? And we reject the owner of the vineyard. Maybe we know that God is a God of truth from beginning to end. It's just sometimes the truth is uncomfortable. And it feels awkward. And will make us look like less if we're totally honest. So we just back away. It's easier to fudge the numbers a little bit, to just not be totally transparent, and that will make us look better, that will save us from hard conversations, that will just be simpler. And we reject the owner of the vineyard. I don't know what it is for you specifically, but I know each and every one of us, myself included, stands before God guilty. So what is God to do? When faced with a bunch of people who have rejected him time and time again. Well, our God, who works through unlikely means, does that again by sending his one and only Son, whom he loves. And that son comes to us and announces that the kingdom of God is here and that we might have life within that kingdom by following him. And there are some who reject him. There are some who put him to death. There are some who throw him out of the vineyard. But our God, who always works through unlikely means, does the unlikeliest thing of all and brings life out of death three days later. And through his victory and resurrection, we are invited to repent. Not because God has conquered us and wants to stand on our throats and triumph over us, but because in spite of the fact that we have rejected him time and time again, he still wants us to come and be a part of his vineyard. So no matter who you are this morning, if you don't hear anything else I say here, these words that are on the screen right now, God is coming for what is his, and what is his is you. He desires you. So come near to Him. Throw off anything that might get in the way. Get rid of anything that might try to convince us that we need to hold on to authority for ourselves, that we could do better on our own and come to Him. Come and be a part of His vineyard. Because it's the life you were meant to live. Let's pray. Father, we confess before You Our faults, our failures, the moments where we have wanted to fight for ourselves, decided we knew better, and cast off your authority to try to take control for ourselves. And we acknowledge that that does not work out well for us. And so we celebrate the fact that you come to us time and time again in your infinite patience and love. And you call us to you. And you call us to you through your son. So God, we celebrate your goodness to us. We celebrate the victory that comes through Christ, the seeming defeat of Christ at the cross and the victory that comes through the empty tomb. God, for each and every one of us right now, we pray that you would make it clear to us where in our lives we Try to throw off your authority wherever that might be. Not for the sake of guilt or shame, but for the sake of being formed into who you've created us to be. So draw us near to you so that we might walk with you. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.